We're continuing this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. It's on page 827 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. Uh, There's a sermon outline on pages 8 and 9 in the bulletin. We're following along from last week, and we discovered that in the first part of chapter 2, the great doctrine or idea at the heart of the gospel message is that God's salvation comes to God's people because of his love and mercy, as a gift, not because of any religious activities, not because of any works or good deeds that anyone could do. The heart of the gospel is that God loved his people while we were spiritually dead in our sins and unable to do anything, that he chose to reveal himself to us, to give us faith, to understand the truth about who he is and thus then we could uh, trust him and believe in him. We remember that the book of Ephesians was originally a letter written from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. Probably Paul was in prison at this time. It was probably also a circular letter. So the letter wasn't just to that particular church, but also to be copied and spread out to other churches that had connection with Paul as a way that he would encourage and continue to teach them even while he was in prison. The church in the city of Ephesus was probably a network of smaller kind of house churches at the time. It was a mixed group in terms of their religious and ethnic background. A few members of the church were religiously and ethnically Jewish, but most of them were not. And this difference is an important issue as we come to our passage this morning, so we'll explore that a bit. But first we'll read the passage from Ephesians 2, uh, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two and thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Please pray with me. Father, we do thank you for these words passed down to us, inspired by your spirit. Your words coming to us. We pray that you would help us to uh, engage with them and submit to them. And to learn what you would teach us this morning. Give me your words to speak. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage presupposes, and a big idea of it this morning is this dynam- the dynamics between Jewish people and Gentile people of the Roman world in the first century. 
which we have to talk a little bit about to understand what's going on here. Gentile, of course, simply means of the nations. It means in the Greek ethnic, the ethnic, other, other ethnic, other ethnicities, other ethnic people, those who are not ethnic Jew, ethnically Jewish. Not from the line of Abraham. That's the idea of, of this. Recent scholarship indicates that it's somewhat hard to characterize the relationship of Jew and Gentile in, the, um, in this time. In terms of cultural differences, though, we can, make, we can say that Jewish people and Gentiles were very different. Jews were quite unique in the way that they worshipped, in what they ate, and in a lot of their habits and practices. There's evidence that they were stereotyped in that time as people who were arrogant and foolish. They didn't work on the Sabbath, uh, which meant that they were lazy. They practiced circumcision, which was very strange. They uh, had all of these food laws and fellowship laws and other habits, which seemed very strange to those around them. Nevertheless, their strange practices were in most places tolerated, and in some places there were Jewish people who rose to positions of prominence and were very much in contact with the Hellenistic society. Other places, that they were persecuted for their beliefs, and they, kept, and they were sort of kept very much in isolation. So it's kind of hard to describe exactly what this would have looked like in a place like Ephesus. But I think this might be a helpful way to think about it. Think about the context of a church. Imagine a church setting in which there was one group, one small group of people, and they were unique, and they were a bit privileged, and everyone sort of knew it. These were the people who had a strong church background. These were the people who understood the vocabulary of the church and the forms of the church. These were the people who all who had worshipped together until recently in one other church and then came to this church. They were all at least... But different, maybe hard to understand, and even mysterious. They t- talked differently, they thought differently, they ate differently, they worshipped differently, they lived a bit differently. So there's this small group of people, and then there's everyone else. A diverse crowd of people from various backgrounds and various cultures who were all new to the church and who perhaps were united by very little among themselves except for faith in Christ. And perhaps in the rest of daily life, this multicultural multiplicity of people would have perhaps very little contact with this monocultural minority. But in the church, they were all together. So can you imagine their struggles? Can you imagine the struggles to communicate and to understand what was meant and what was intended? Can you imagine their struggles to worship and to fellowship and to eat meals together? Can you imagine their struggles to get past cultural differences, stereotypes, and prejudices? We see these struggles in the book of Acts and in so many of the New Testament letters that it was a difficult bridge for them to cross. It was difficult for Jewish believers in Jesus to see Gentiles on equal footing and to draw them in and not be offended by their strange practices. It was difficult for Gentiles who had very little contact with Jewish people or the Jewish history to be grafted into this very sort of Jewish religion of a Jewish Messiah who is for all nations. And you can see how it was difficult for them It would have seen, and how these things would have seemed foreign to them, how it would have been difficult to bridge that gap. Both Jew and non-Jew would have struggled deeply, and that's what we see in letter after letter in the New Testament and in the book of Acts, of these difficulties for them to understand 
and to get along and to worship and to serve together. And for the Apostle Paul, there's only one solution. There's only one answer. There's only one way to think about our outward human differences. Everything has changed based upon what Christ has done. Based upon what Christ has done, everything has changed in the way that we view other people, in the way that we view ourselves. The key question is this. Does gospel reality go deeply enough in our hearts to get to the core of who we are? Does the truth of the gospel trump our our, um, preferences and our perspectives, our backgrounds and our upbringing, our histories and our narratives of past injustices and present tensions? Does the gospel get us out of our ethnocentricity and our inherent feelings of cultural superiority? Does the gospel change us and change the way we see others? Deeply. The question for us today could be posed in this sort of way. How does being a believer in Christ critique my Americanness and my own cultural identity? How does faith in Christ change the way I see myself as an American and the way I see American culture and the way I my American preferences are made? To tackle this question, of course, we go to Ephesians 2. And Paul teaches us how the gospel is the answer. We'll see in this passage that there's a before and there's an after part of the gospel applied to believers. And we'll also see how that bridge is crossed, what Christ has done to bring after from before. So we'll see before, after, and then we'll see how Christ has done all of this. Paul reminds us that we have to remember the gospel that begins with remembering what used to be true for all of us who grew up without Christ. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. He's addressing the majority of the church, the non-Jews. And Paul is saying, remember who you were. And he lists three things in this verse. First, you were separate from Christ. You were not connected to him. You didn't know him. You didn't love him. Second, you were excluded. You were alienated from citizenship in Israel. You had no inheritance in Israel. And that's important because Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John 4, the source of salvation is the Jews. The Messiah will come from the Jewish people, that, from that specific ethnic group. Even though he's coming from all the world, that's the group he's coming from. And you, Paul says in this passage, were excluded and alienated from that group. Finally, Paul, and the third thing, Paul writes that you were foreigners or strangers to the covenants of promise. The Greek word is exeno, from which we get the word xenophobia, which, of course, xenophobia is the fear of what is foreign, the fear of what is strange or different. Uh, if any of you all have seen and remember in the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding, it's the story about uh, this very close-knit Greek family and a daughter in this family who wants to, who falls in love with and wants to marry a non-Greek man. And if you remember the, the, the father, the sort of patriarch of the family, when he, 
when the, he, it comes to a crisis, when he realizes this is what's really going to happen, that his daughter loves and wants to marry this non-Greek man. And he's like, he's exeno. He's different. He's foreign. He's not Greek. The father uses the same word that, that Paul uses here. He's a stranger to the covenant of promise. He's not like the rest of us. Paul is saying that God's great promises and covenants made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, and David, the great actions of redemptive history were foreign to you Gentiles. You weren't included. In fact, in fact you were particularly excluded. You, weren't, you were like those people who were defeated by God's miracles. You were like the Egyptians. The covenant wasn't for you. Of course, we know in the Old Testament that God's people were to invite in all the nations and graft them into his people. But Paul is saying that you weren't grafted in at that time. You were cut off. All of the great things God has done were foreign to you. At this point, I want to make a bit of an excursus about how we may be in a little different place than the Gentiles of the first century who were all first-generation believers. Certainly some of us here are first-generation believers who didn't grow up in the church, didn't grow up in Christian, Christian homes. We were strangers to the covenants and promises of the gospel, and we were like these Gentiles. We were in the same boat. But others of us grew up in the church, and we recognize that as New Testament believers, many generations later, who grew up in the church and with believing parents, that God's covenant is not completely foreign to us, right? That we aren't foreigners to the covenant, rather we grew up hearing about it from birth, about God and about his promises. Many of us were baptized as infants, which is a sign that we are included in this covenant community. We see evidence in scripture that God's covenant promises have a generational Component that God promises to be the God of his people to the third and fourth and thousandth generation. We can trust, we rely on the fact that God will be merciful to our children as indeed he has been merciful to us. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that one who grew up in a Christian home can't walk away from Christ. It doesn't mean that anyone can have a relationship with God based on the faith of someone else. Of course, that's not true. But part of what we teach and part of understanding the, the big picture of God's covenant is that in our community, from birth, little ones are included. And we trust that God will be the one who is at work in their hearts through the Spirit, that they too will grow to embrace the gospel and place their faith in Christ. I think I need to just make that point, that excursus, that we can't draw a one-to-one application here. Some of us can who grew up far from the church, and others of us who grew up in the church understand our closeness a bit to these covenant promises of God. Getting back to the Gentiles of the first century, Paul is teaching the summary statement, you were without hope and without God in the world. Without hope, without God in the world. That is a bleak picture. There is no hope for you, and this is the state of life lived apart from God. The Bible uses these kinds of words to describe people in that state. Spiritually dead, hopeless, lost, orphaned, under wrath. We need to remember that. We need to let the weight of it sink in. That we would remember who we were. That we would have compassion on others. Still, even in this state of lostness, helplessness, and hopelessness, God sought to have mercy and display his love. We were not worthless to him. 
even though in every way we we were unable and unlovely. We get to the after part of the gospel. We find that God treasured us, that we were priceless to him. And we can think about this, the Bible talks about this in sort of economic terms even. We know this, the basic law of supply and demand, that something is worth what is paid for it. The price paid is what determines the value of the thing purchased. And the New Testament abounds with the language that, and the idea that those who believe are bought with the precious blood of Christ. That that is the purchase price for God's people. And that should give us tremendous encouragement. The priceless blood of the eternal Son of God, freely given out of love, bought us and brought us out of this hopeless state. Remember that, even in the bad news, as we get to the after, as we get to what the gospel has done, that the good news is that much greater. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. The purchasing blood of Christ is what has brought those who were far away and lost and helpless near. And the conjunction there, but now, is the difference between without hope and with a sure hope. And with an eternal and secure hope. But now, God has acted in Christ. You were far away. You're brought near. Verse 19 is the reversal of verse 12. It uses the same images and the same uh, concepts, but in an opposite way. It says in verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. You're no longer exeno. You're no longer excluded, but you have a new citizenship. Not with Old Testament Israel, but with all of God's people, with the saints in God's household. As strongly as Paul described the hopeless state without Christ in verse 12, now he's describing the, all of the hope, the reversal of that, that's found in the gospel in Christ there in verse 19. These verses, the after part of the gospel, the gospel applied to God's people, teach us this is a past event. In, the lives, in our lives, what has been completed. This great change has already happened. We're no longer foreigners. We're not anymore far away. We are now brought near. Much of the action in these verses that describe what's happened is in the past tense. It's completed. Some of it is in the present tense, which teaches us what is still happening. What does this mean now? Verse 18, we have access presently to the Father through the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, we are being built together presently to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. We're secure in what has happened in the past and is completed. We're confident in the present, in God's presence and his work in our lives. How did we move from before to after? Jesus Christ, of course, is the central character in all of this. He's the one who made it possible. It's no way connected to what we have done in ourselves. And these verses abound in how this gospel change has been made possible in the amazing things that Christ has done. Here are the things that the Savior has done from this passage. Verse 14, he is our peace. He is the peacemaker. 
Verse 17, he's the preacher of peace. Not just the one who makes peace, but the one who brings peace to both Jew and Gentile, to those who were near and to those who were far off. Verse 14, he's destroyed the barrier, the wall of hostility between these two very different groups of people. And he does this in verse 15 by creating one new man in place of the two and thus bringing the message of peace and bringing them together. Notice that Christ creates in himself this new man. Both groups needed the message of peace. Both groups needed to be in Christ. He doesn't make Jews into Gentiles. He doesn't make Gentiles into Jews. He creates a completely new kind of people whose citizenship is in heaven, whose ruler is the king of all kings. And these people, as different as they were, Jew and Gentile, and are, are now together in the church. The dividing wall of hostility between them is broken down. There can be horizontal peace among believers. All of this peace is predicated upon a vertical peace, peace with God, described in verse 16. That the cross is the peace, the reconciliation between all people and God vertically. As much as we pray and we hope and we ask God for horizontal peace in our world, we know that the only true basis for peace between people is the vertical peace that comes from God through the cross and Jesus Christ. And that peace brings true peace to us and reconciliation. And then the first fruits of that peace are now born out in the life of the church and through Christians as peacemakers through our societies. And we long for the one day yet to come when true peace will rule the whole world and all peoples will be completely subjected to the Prince of Peace. This is the before and after of the gospel. This is what Jesus has done. What does it mean for us today? What are the implications for us? The foundation and the key for everyone is a personal connection with Christ. These great truths must be personally appropriated through faith and repentance. Otherwise, Christ is still outside of us. We're not in him. The gospel is only good news if we know it as part of our experience, not as propositions to know intellectually, but as truths that we stake our life upon. So I ask you this morning, do you know that God loves you and that he has provided the blood of his son to save you? Do you see that these promises are worth the whole of your life And there's nothing that you can gain that would be more valuable. Do you know that there's nothing that you can give to gain the love of God that is a free gift to you? Do you know that there's nothing that you could do to lose God's love either? This is the gospel. This is our only hope. And it must begin for us in knowing and trusting in Christ who loved us and gives himself up for us. If you haven't placed your faith and trust in him, today is a great day to repent and to believe. That Christ calls you to give up this before picture of lostness and hopelessness and to trust that these words in Ephesians 2 are true. For all who do believe, be encouraged today by these truths. Something objective and final has happened to all who are in Christ. We're no longer far away. We're brought near. We're no longer full of hostility, but we're recipients of peace. 
We're no longer foreigners and strangers, but family in the household of God. Part of the building with the apostles and the prophets, a holy temple to the Lord, described in verse 20. Something objective and true has happened. Something objective is now happening to all who are in Christ. We have access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. We have access to supernatural power, God's power, far beyond our own. Verse 22, we are being built together to become a temple, a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And that's sort of like the end of this chapter. It's like the trump card here. From the picture of before in verse 11 to the picture of being a dwelling place of God, a temple of God living within us, Paul takes us on that journey. That's what this passage is teaching us. The practical burden of the passage, I think, is a calling to recognize the deep and abiding unity that all believers have in Christ. For Jew and Gentile in the first century, that was a huge hurdle. And it was an amazing witness to the truth of the message. For us today, we also have the privilege and calling to be those who recognize and seek to live out of this unity with all other believers in Christ, which goes beyond all ethnic, cultural, language, all the other ways that the world is divided. Jesus is the one who is the uniter. Takes us back to the beginning of the sermon to see the application here. The gospel changes the way that we view ourselves and the way that we view other people. Believing in gospel means that everything has changed in our view of our culture and in the view of our own citizenship. But it takes the supernatural work of God in our lives and in our church for us to see this kind of unity. The reality, the outflowing of this has to come from the gospel going deeply within us. Let me give you an example. Many of us in the Western world were not really aware at the time but have since joined the world in understanding the events that unfolded in the African country of Rwanda in the spring of 1994. Civil war broke out in Rwanda after there were two, uh, two of the three major tribes, uh, different ethnic groups of people living in Rwanda, the Hutu tribe and the Tutsi tribe. War broke out between them when the president's plane was shot down and he was killed. There was a long history of hatred and animosity between these two tribes. It was related to race, it was related to class, it was related to collaboration with European colonizers. Europeans, Westerners, are the ones who made a lot of the mess that that people experience now in Africa. So they created part of this problem between these two people that simmered and grew. And with the spark of this uh, assassination of the president and these tensions flared up, and in the course of a hundred days, it's estimated that between half a million and a million people were killed in the Rwandan genocide. Most people were killed by one tribe against the other as payback for years of history and animosity and and problems that had built up between the two. It it was a dramatic case of unintervention on the part of the watching world who wasn't really watching. The United Nations and other groups had to just, just back away as this happened. There are many heroic stories of people who stood up in the face of great evil, but mostly the stories are horrific and unimaginable. 
to us. One of the strangest parts of the story is that up to that point, Rwanda had been seen as one of the greatest missionary success stories in all of Africa. The population of Rwanda was Christian. As opposed to being Islamic or animist or any other competing religion, demographically this was a Christian nation with over 90% of the people identifying with the church. I don't mean to stand in judgment, of course, of the faith of Rwandans. I haven't lived their history. I was not a part of them, knowing these great injustices of one tribe against another. I can't imagine what happened both before and after this genocide to cause so much pain between fellow Rwandans. We haven't lived their tale. We don't know it. But we know our own stories of ways that we as a Christian nation have oppressed other people groups. The point is this. Does the gospel go deep enough to overcome historical injustice and hatred? Does the gospel capture hearts in many places in Rwanda, I'm sure that it does. But in other places, somehow, it hadn't gone deeply enough. The church wasn't a force that would prevent this kind of thing from happening. It's easier to look at that example than the ones that are closer to home, of our broken cities and the divides that between suburban and urban areas. In the American South, history of racism in the American West, different places, where we see examples of how the gospel must go very deeply to overcome the deep divides between race, culture, language, history. And the shallow appropriation of the gospel doesn't get us there. And this is the gospel that Paul is proclaiming to us. The gospel brings the most unlikely tribes together. Christ is the end of the curse of Babel. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is the great reuniting of people who were scattered, divided, and hostile. In all of the languages that were there, you remember the story in Acts 2. And remember how it's the reversal of what happened in Genesis 11 when God divided the people and gave them different languages. At Pentecost, God was saying... The message is for all people and all languages and can overcome and relativize our own cultural um, identities. Christ is the end of the curse of Babel and how much we need this truth, how much we need this kind of peace, how much we need to seek to live out these truths in the church And as believers, as we encounter people with different perspectives and different preferences, how much the watching world needs to see Christians who don't fight and devour within, who don't criticize and judge without, but who are bearers of this gospel message of peace and reconciliation to a world who's without hope and without God. The before and after of the gospel calls us to this great work. Be encouraged and challenged by these words This morning, please pray with me. Father, we are thankful that you have brought us near who were once far off. We're thankful that the promises that we experience in the gospel are real and true, and they go deep to overcome our own pride, selfishness, and and cultural um, identities. 
Lord, we pray that this would be true in our lives. Help us to get along with one another. Help us to see others' perspectives and to listen well. Help us to resolve these sorts of tensions that come in ways that are honoring to you. Help us to see others around us as lost and far from the gospel and to see that we have a message of peace and reconciliation that this world needs. Lord, we, we need your help, and so we ask for it, that these words would be true in our lives and that this truth would sink deeply into us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.